Hi friends, I'm Amy Julia Becker, and this is Love is Stronger Than Fear, a podcast about pursuing hope and healing in the midst of personal pain and social division. It is so nice to be back with you after a summer hiatus, although the summer hiatus was nice too. But I get back to this and I realize that I can't really believe that I get to do this podcast. It's like so dreamy for me because I get to read books by people that I respect and admire and then talk to them about it. And I, as any of you who've been following along in any of the forms that I put content out into the world, will know that I am a book nerd. And so reading books and talking to other people about those books or absorbing their ideas in some capacity and getting to talk to them about it, yeah, dream come true. I'm so glad that you get to be here as well. And I will tell you, we've got a great season coming up. Today, Rich Viotas, um, later on in the season, Ruth Haley Barton, Lori Ferguson Wilbert, Willie James Jennings, and so many more just beautiful voices that will uplift and inspire and I think really be a part of a transformation that, again, moves us towards a place of honesty, humility, hope, and healing. So to start the season today, I'm talking with Rich Viotis, pastor of New Life Community Church in Queens, New York. His latest book came out a couple months ago, and we uh, today are going to talk all about that book and how we can become people who are experiencing God's healing love and bringing God's healing love into our communities. His book is called Good and Beautiful and Kind, and it is all those things. I hope you will enjoy his book and enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So I'm here with Rich Viotis, and I'm really excited to get to talk with him about his new book. And Rich, just want to welcome you to the podcast. Amy Julia, thanks for having me back on. It's a gift to be with you. Well, I was introduced actually to you and your work I don't know, a couple of years ago when The Deeply Formed Life came out. That's your first book. And if anyone who's been a longtime listener to this podcast might recall, we had a great conversation about that book, which I have recommended to countless people. I think what I love about your that book, but also your ministry, because I now follow you on Instagram, which I also recommend to people who are looking for like depth and substance in the world of Instagram, follow Rich Viotis because it's a like daily dose of that. Um, But anyway, I love this combination of a kind of simple gospel Orthodox Christian faith that is paired with contemplative prayer and action in the world, because I don't feel as though there are many places that I find those three things like actually in um, not even tension, but just in communication with each other. And that's something that is has been true of your work for a long time. It's true of your new book. I really appreciate that about what you're doing. We're going to get a chance to talk about that a bit. Um, but I did jump at the chance because I've been now following you for a couple of years to talk about this new book, Good and Beautiful and Kind. Um, where did, where? well, I know where you got the title, but for listeners who don't know that, will you tell us where the title came from? Yeah, you know, uh, the title comes from this wonderful poem by Langston Hughes, the great African-American poet. And he wrote a poem called Tired. I I read many of Hughes' poems and I read this poem a number of years ago and have come back to it year after year because I think it succinctly captures the longings of our soul as well as what's happening in our world. And the poem essentially says, he says, I am so tired of waiting, aren't you, for the world to become good and beautiful and kind. Let us take a knife and cut the world in two and see what worms are eating at the rind. And so he's there's this longing for goodness 
some beauty and kindness. He knows there's something wrong with the world. And his invitation and really is to, to take a knife. And it's a jarring image, but he's not getting at kind of further uh, dividing the world into this side and that side. He's trying to get beneath. So he talk, he's more talking about depth than division. Mm. And, uh, so when I read that poem and I thought about the kind of work that I'm trying to do as a pastor, as an author, uh, as a follower of Jesus, I thought that's, that's the, those are the words that I, I think our society is longing for. And, uh, it's a great poem to, um, to see really the ideas that uh, I've tried to bring forward in this book. Absolutely. I think there's, it was interesting because I knew the title, but I obviously didn't know the contents until I read it. And, you know, I've recently been working on a book about healing and really about the power of God's healing love. And so I got into this book and was like, oh, that's what this book is about too. And it's by no means, I mean, they're very, very different books, but I just was, um, it felt so apropos to have you on this podcast with the title of it being Love is Stronger Than Fear. And this is a podcast about the healing power of God's love when it comes to both personal pain and social division. And all of those themes run through this book as well. And in the introduction, you asked this question, what does it mean to have our lives formed by God's love? And I thought maybe that would be a place to start just to give an overview of the book, but asking that question, what does it mean? Why does it matter for us to have and to live lives formed by God's love? Yeah, you know, it's, it is the strongest power in the world, the love of God and love as a force, you know, lots of folks think of love in very sentimental categories and to preach about love too much. Uh, people think you're watering down the gospel. You're not taking sin seriously, mm-hmm. failing to see that love is the most powerful force in the world to bring about transformation. Uh, and so what I'm trying to do here is identify an individual interpersonal and institutional ways. Mm. Uh, what does it mean uh, to love well? And a big overview of it, you know, I'm, I'm beginning by talking about sin, which is not the, I, you know, I don't know how popular that <laughs> will be uh, to begin a book on sin. But what I'm trying to do is um, frame sin uh, as failure to love, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to just uh, abstractly missing the mark or morally failing. Um, I really, if the greatest commandment is to love, I love God, your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. If that's the greatest commandment, the greatest sin must be failure to do that commandment mm-hmm. and it's failure to love. And so I, I begin by talking about how sin turns us inward. Uh, it's that Augustine phrase of in curvitus and say that we are uh, self-referential, uh, turned in on ourselves uh, and not towards God, not towards our neighbor. And but that's not the only problem with us within us. There's a larger problem of powers and principalities. And so I don't know how popular having a second chapter on powers and principalities <laughs> is going to be. But uh, I'm trying to get at there's a larger force in our world that disrupts the flow of love, Mm -hmm. Uh, powers that we cannot see with our eyes that get uh, entrenched into ideologies and institutions and individuals uh, that block the flow of love, which leads to us living in a traumatized world. Uh, So I'm right about trauma. And then from that point on, really, those are the forces behind the the fractures that Mm -hmm. block the flow of love. And then from there, I'm trying to talk about how do we move towards love through contemplative prayer, uh, through humility as kind of that chief virtue uh, that can cultivate love 
Uh, and through really in family systems theories differentiation, I use kind of like calm and curious presence uh, in the book. But that's not all love is. Love is not all just about interpersonal. It's a part of the larger world as well. So I find, you know, the last part of it is focusing on uh, dealing with conflict, uh, forgiveness and justice and trying to hold these things together. So it's not by any means a comprehensive take on it, but it's I think it's a broad take on the ways that we can have our souls be trained uh, to love well in a world that, quite frankly, uh, does not love well. Uh, and so that's kind of the big picture, but I'm trying to, in many ways, you know, the, the initial title of the book was called Rooted in Love. Mm-hmm. And, and then I was just, so you'll see that phrase come up over and over again, yeah. to be rooted in love. And after, you know, draft two and draft three, I, the, the Hughes poem is like, oh, that's really what I want to get at here. Uh, but you'll see me talking, essentially, it's a book on love, uh, but coming at it from a different angle. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I, you know, it's interesting because before I knew that the Hughes poem was the inspiration for the title, I had heard, I think it was Peter Kreeft, who's a philosopher, say that we are longing, like all humans are longing for truth, goodness, and beauty. Mm. And then I heard a pastor say, and our generation is longing for it in the opposite order, for beauty goodness Mm. and truth and that like when we see the beauty of god we then begin to understand the goodness of god which leads us to the truth of god anyway so i actually thought that was where the title was coming from and i was a little bit like why kindness instead of truth which is of course not what you're doing at all i learned on you know the first page when you talk about the hughes poem but i still think there is something of that um Mm. getting after those human longings like this is what we all want and why are we not living that way and i get Mm. it that um you know, sin is not a popular word and it can seem like an old fashioned religious concept, but I, you make a claim that it is actually incredibly necessary in order for us to understand our world, but also how to live in love. And I loved, you had a quote from Barbara Brown Taylor that sin is our only hope. <laughs> this is all, we actually, which is not, you know, as, as usual, um, not a sentence you kind of expect Um, (laughs) And yet a really helpful one, right? Sin is our only hope. Will you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, you know, um, Barbara Brown Taylor, an Episcopal, you know, priest has been so helpful uh, in helping me see, again, sin in a a hopeful kind of a way. And, you know, she gets at this idea that um, abandoning the language of sin, this is kind of her language, that will not make sin go away. And that um, just because we do away with it, um, what it does is it doesn't give us the appropriate category uh, to address some of the larger points of fragmentation, of evil, of pain in our world. That if the issue is simply about education or the issue simply about some moral failings here or there, some moral inconsistency, it puts it puts humanity far in, in far too a positive light. Mm-hmm. Something else is a principle at work in the world. Uh, you know, whether I'm, I'm watching Star Wars these days, and so whether we're talking, calling it the dark side or whatever, there's something about our society that cannot be neatly explained and categorized. That when we see some of the atrocities, when we see mass shootings, when we see war, when we see uh, disease and such, there's like there's something else that's wrong that uh, is 
emerging outside of ourselves and taking root within ourselves. And so I think the language, uh, much credit to Barbara Brown Taylor for helping me and someone like Fleming Rutledge as well to see that um, we need this language uh, in ways that are not condescending and in ways that are not uh, moralistic and um, uh, weaponized, Mm -hmm. uh, but in a way that helps us to see the gravity of the challenge and the fractured and the alienation that we see. And so, uh, and I think this is where Christians can offer the world a a broader lexicon uh, to explain really what's happening in the world. And maybe there's some other resources that we need to move us towards wholeness. Well, and I think what you do a great job of is um, not oversimplifying sin in this. On the one hand, you give a simple definition, failure to love. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, in talking about both the ways in which we individually have a failure to love, we get curved in on ourselves. There are moral choices we make, but also just neglect. I mean, all, you know, self-centeredness, all those things. But there's also this external powers and principalities, forces that malform us as well by, you know, systems of oppression essentially that act on us rather than, and they also perhaps um, act within us. But nevertheless, there's both the agency that I have to make choices that are sinful, um, to use the word. And then there's also this, um, I can't even help it that sin Mm -hmm. is affecting me because it is out there as a force in the world. But in either case, being able to see that and name it for what it is you're contending is something that actually allows us to experience, as you say, stumble towards wholeness. <laughs> so it's not some neat uh, path towards wholeness, but stumble towards wholeness, which in turn allows us to become agents of healing. So there is this really um, positive direction that takes us towards the love of God, if mm-hmm. and as we're able to actually name sin and see it for what it is and the ways that it um, distorts and uh, deforms our being. Yeah. Yeah. The hope is not that we're seeing sin in such a way that keeps us turned inward on our, on ourselves and, and keeps us there. I mean, there's some uh, Christianities that will have us focus on our human depravity to the extent that we never move towards wholeness. You know, there's some context, you know, I, I grew up in a Pentecostal context where, uh, you know, folks talk more about the devil than they did about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's easy to talk about sin more than wholeness. And so the goal is not simply to, to end there, I think, um, but I think it's a necessary place to begin to get at the, 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 the depth and the comprehensive nature of the struggle that we find ourselves in, which then leads to us recognizing there's not just something in here, there's a larger force outside in our world called powers and principalities that we need language for as well uh, to really understand the trouble that we're in and maybe the resources to get out of it. And I also think we have this um, in putting sin in the context of a failure to love. There's this deeper truth that in the nature of love, I I remember a friend of mine once saying, and I don't know if this is true anymore, but then when um, like FBI agents were trained in how to identify counterfeit hundred dollar bills, they weren't given counterfeit hundred dollar bills. They were given real ones and that's what they had to study Hmm. because if they knew the real thing well enough, they would be able to identify the counterfeits. And I think 
there's something there as well in the sense of like, if we, in the person of Jesus and in the story of the scriptures and in the, yeah, descriptions of love lived out, if we can get to know love, then we start to be able to see, and actually your book has a lot of wonderful personal examples of you over the course of a lifetime of walking with God, beginning to see the ways in which you are not being formed and shaped by love. And in fact, are failing to love as a result of that, whether that's in like reactivity to somebody who says something and you feel all defensive or whether it's in a, you know, failure to clean your, you know, facial hair out of the sink with your (laughs) wife or whatever it is. Again, very real life scenarios so many of us can relate to. Um, But I really love that sense of uh, love is at the core. Love is the beginning and the end. And we have to talk about sin in order to make sense of why we're not all living in loving la la land all the time. Right. Um, And yet it's also an insistence that we can be headed in that direction by God's grace and um, by that equipping and rooting that he wants for us. Yeah, absolutely. And I I mean, that is the standard that Jesus offers his disciples in terms of what does it mean to truly be a follower of me? Uh, It is love. And I think what I've discovered in preaching and pastoring and writing and conversations that are coming up is that's what the world is really longing for. The world is really longing for a faith that is training people and forming people to love well. And anytime it's not happening, uh, the world instinctively knows that Christianity is to be marked by love, which is why I think the, the world it serves as a gift, a prophetic gift to the church. Uh, when the when the world says you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, mm. I think that's a great gift. I don't think we should be receiving that uh, defensively, but they're calling us to our original purpose in God, which is uh, to love well. So the rebuke that the church is receiving from the secular society, from the world around us, actually, I think could be God's word being spoken through them to us. Mm-hmm. That makes so much sense. And again, I think this, the first part of this book in terms of identifying the problem of sin is really helpful. And then you turn towards what you're kind of talking about here. Okay, so if that's not how we're living, how could we? And you, um, you say, you write, our world is fractured because many followers of Christ have not learned to pray in a way that opens us up to God's healing. And I was, again, a little bit surprised that that's the term. It makes perfect sense. And yet it's like, oh, yeah, okay, so... Prayer is kind of the first answer, not the only answer, and praying in a way that opens us up to God's healing, which is essentially praying in a way that also acknowledges and begins to notice our brokenness, our woundedness. Um, Mm. So could you talk about what does it mean to pray in a way that opens us up to God's healing? That, you know, prayer has become, and, and this is fresh in my mind, only because of the continued problem of mass shootings. Uh, in our nation. And every time there's a mass shooting, the word prayer is like one of the first words that emerges. So it's a very religious um, uh, theological term that tends to dominate uh, Mm -hmm. social media and the world because the first response usually is, you know, thoughts and prayers. And uh, every time that comes up uh, and the way that it's used just reminds me that prayer has so often just been seen as uh, self-oriented catharsis. Uh, it's seen as a way of just um, pacifying the situation without actually um, 
allowing that space to be a place of personal transformation, a place of seeing the world differently, mm-hmm. a place of joining in what God is already doing. And so, uh, and, and it's uh, ironic because I begin the chapter by focusing on mass shootings mm-hmm. uh, and, and one of, you know, the ways that prayer has become an obstacle to transformation in our society, right. which yeah. is the saddest thing in the world, because when Jesus teaches us how to pray, He's, he, he says to actively pray, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so it's often the case that when people hear that prayer, they hear it in the form of, uh, Lord, there's so many problems in this world. Uh, we can't do anything about it. Please let your kingdom come. Mm. As opposed to, Lord, there's so much that we can do, but only in your power. And uh, I think prayer has often been seen in the first way. Lord, there's nothing we can do. Please fix this world. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And I think the Lord is looking at us and saying, I want you to come. (laughs) You know, I want you to uh, uh, put feet on your prayers. Uh, But I I do believe prayer is the start. And so much that sin is the starting point to recognize how fractured our world is and alienated our world is. I do believe prayer is a starting point to a world that's marked by wholeness, but it is a particular kind of prayer mm-hmm. that's not going to, again, pacify um, uh, the you know status quo. It's not just going to keep me oriented within myself. It actually is going to move me towards love and towards the other uh, and towards wholeness and justice. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember when my husband was in college, um, one of the terms they had in their kind of college fellowship was the prayer Heisman. Um, So using the like portrait of a Heisman trophy winner, who's like, you know, pushing the hands away. They're like, oh, I'll pray for you. Like, I'm not going (laughs) to help you. I'm not going to engage with you. I'm just going to pray for you. And I think that like that, I mean, again, it's not funny, but that is what we often see with a radical response of like, I'll pray for you. And yet I think what you're you're writing about is a different way of prayer, which is I'm going to start with that contemplative space. And you give a couple of examples, both in terms of stillness and silence in God's presence, but then also you use the example of an ancient prayer called the Jesus prayer in terms of just really Mm. examining the heart and saying, God, I want to see what is wrong inside Mm. of me. I want to see that sin, not so that I can like wallow in the, you know, uh, despair of it, but so that it might be healed, which will free me up to enter into the world in a different way and to take action and engage um, out of a place of love and not out of a place of woundedness. Mm-hmm. Which leads me to another question because you write a fair amount about the ways that we try to protect ourselves, the a sense of um, our defenses, whether that's against criticism or even just against someone who has an opinion that's different than ours. Um, and you write about the practice of humility as an antidote to soul fragility. So could you talk a little bit about that? Like how is, um, what is soul fragility and how is humility an antidote and how can we practice humility? Like, how is that not something that just kind of happens, but something we can actually practice? Yeah. You know, soul fragility is, I'm so familiar with it because (laughs) I I recognize how, how emotionally fragile I am uh, towards critique, uh, difference, uh, disagreement that there's something in me, I mean, some, you know, theologians will call it the false self, that mm-hmm. there's something inside of me that I'm trying to establish, prop up, 
um, a, a, way, a, a, a way that I'm trying to um, offer myself to the world as competent, as capable, uh, that I'm rooting my identity in all these things. And then when those things are challenged, uh, the false self is threatened. Uh, and so soul fragility is really this idea that we are constantly on guard trying to protect ourselves from uh, the threats of others. Uh, and humility then becomes the way of, yeah, I was trying to address humility. When, when folks usually think about humility, they think about doing the lowly task. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I'm trying to do is uh, it's the hard task of lowering our defenses mm-hmm. uh, that that when we're able to do that, I think we are establishing our true self in Christ. Where's our true identity is not in what people say about me, how people agree with me or disagree with me. Uh, but it is in back to love. It's rooted in the love of God. Uh, and so this is the gateway for me. And I think so much of the conversations that we're having related to race, related to politics, related to sexuality, related to whatever across the board, it's such a minefield and we can't have, you know, healthy conversations or deliberate with one another because there's so much fragility. Now in that term, you know, lots of folks think about like white fragility. Yeah. Uh, and so folks typically go there and, you know, that white people can't have a, hard, a conversation about race because there's just something in them that's weak. And, and so they're going to make up all kinds of uh, obstacles and such yeah. to uh, make some uh, movement here. Uh, and, you know, I, I think there's some, that's good sociological uh, terminology to understand mm-hmm. what's happening, but there's a larger fragility uh, that moves beyond just white and it's the soul for, so for me, I'm trying to say um, in various circumstances, we all have this. And the most powerful in our world or seemingly powerful in our world um, have this. Uh, Those that are on the margins of society have this. We're all fragile to some degree. Mm -hmm. uh, And humility is an opportunity for us to really root ourselves uh, in something deeper, namely the love of God. Well, and you give an example. I'm trying to think. I remember that you knew you were having a meeting with someone that was like possibly going to be criticism of you. And so you took a walk just to be like, why am I so either freaked out or defensive going into this meeting? And then wrote down a variety of things that you were like, here are some lies I'm believing about myself. Could you talk to you tell that story a little bit, just because I think it's an example of the non-reactivity, calm presence and humility that you're getting at in this kind of center section of the book. Yeah, you know, um, when th- this happened after uh, January 6th, so after January okay, 6th, that's what it was. Um, I, I preached a message after, you know, the insurrection of the Capitol and all that there. I, I preached a message on remembering our baptism. Providentially, that Sunday after January 6th, uh, on the church calendar, it was focusing on the baptism of Jesus. And so I thought, mm-hmm. you know what, this is a great opportunity to remind ourselves in our congregation, who do we belong to in light of this national, uh, this national news here and, and really crisis. Mm-hmm. And so I preach this message and I you know, talk about corrosive racism and cable news discipleship and uh, charismatic prophecies and uh, conspiracy theories, you know, all the bad stuff that starts with the letter C. And I, I talked about the whole thing. And a few uh, days after, I started getting a number of messages from congregants who were 
uh, frankly upset that I covered some of those things Mm -hmm. and which surprised me. uh, But I started having a number of these conversations and one of our congregants who really is a pillar of our church asked to, uh, you know, have a two hour meeting. And I'm thinking Hmm. nothing good can come out of a two hour. (laughs) And, and so I just asked, you know, can I, can we meet for, you know, 75 minutes for 20 <laughs> minutes? You know, this is my, again, this is my anxiety here. And, uh, and I got to a point where two hours before the meeting, I'm, I'm just messed up. I'm thinking that oh, this is a bad, no, this conversation is really bad. So I go for a walk on Queens Boulevard, sit on the bench and start naming some of the lies or asking really God to help me see the messages that I've internalized. That's causing so much anxiety in me that I need to lower my defenses. And, uh, you know, the Lord sort of bringing to mind about six to seven lies, messages, but it was only until I was able to do that work that I was able to live from a deeper center. And it wasn't that everything was just perfectly fine when I had that meeting a couple of hours later, but I was able to come at it from, I think, a more centered, present uh, place where I was no longer thinking about my own inadequacies and the things that I'm not getting right. Um, and, but that takes a lot of work to be in those spaces. Um, but it's something that I've, has helped me along the way. Well, I know from reading other places, this book, but all other books and your, um, you know, posts on Instagram and so forth as well, that there is a daily work that you're doing, not because every single day you have someone asking for a two hour meeting to critique a sermon, right? But because there is a sense of every day I can come into the presence of God and ask without fragility because I, well, and ask without fragility for God to reveal the places in me that I need to see that are dark or ugly or need to be brought into the light. And the reason I can do that is because God's intention for me is love. It's not that God's intention is to punish me for that or shame me for that or cast me out. Not, I mean, so far the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I remember when, um, just back to the word fragility, when white fragility came out and I read the book and certainly as a white person recognized myself in much of her descriptions of that and felt like there were some helpful aspects to it. But I also was really thinking about the relationship between fragility and vulnerability Hmm. because vulnerability is not the same as fragility, right? I mean, fragility is like, if I knock on, you know, knock you, you're going to break. Right. Whereas vulnerability is like, the ability to be wounded, but I think it's also the ability to be open to love. And so there is a sense of, if I'm not defending myself, I might get wounded, Mm -hmm. but I also might be open to love. And so if we are vulnerable in God's presence, we're guaranteed the love, right? If we're vulnerable in one another's presence, then it's just, we have a chance of that. Um, Whereas if we're fragile all the time, we're just going to be at risk of either cutting ourselves off or being broken all the time. That's so well said. And I wish I put that in the book, Uh, (laughs) but you're right. I mean, it is vulnerability, which humility cultivates that Uh, humility. Again, most folks think humility is okay. I'll have to, I'll be the guy to clean the toilets and I'll do the lowly task. And I think that Mm -hmm. is an aspect of humility. What I'm trying to do is say, um, I think there's something um, a bit deeper that moves beyond just the tasks that we give ourselves to, but how we see ourselves and how we see others and how we see God that informs now our interactions and vulnerability becomes a pathway towards moving beyond the kind of fragility to really a a deep uh, soul strength Mm -hmm. in God. 
Right, right. It enables us to move towards others and have difficult conversations and uh, 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 be exposed to my own blind spots and ways that I'm missing the mark. Um, and so, you know, every time I meet with a congregant, who, you know, and they say, you know, I just met with someone yesterday and my fragility came to the surface again. Hmm. And um, the person said, can we, you know, Pastor Ritz, can we, can we meet? I have some puzzles and some wonderings. And my mind went to all kinds of, okay, what did I preach recently? And did I post anything on social media? And, oh, I haven't, and I went to all these interpretations of what I think could possibly happen. And then I basically said, and this was my anxiety. I said, I responded, I said, could you do me a favor? Could you, could you be a little bit more specific about what you want to talk about before our meeting? And the person was fine. And the response they gave, I was like, oh, that's all? Like, that's <laughs> Right. I look forward to meeting. And I think in some ways that's a good practice so that we're not blindsided all the time with what's happening, especially in the world that we're in. But I do know that that request uh, partly was wise, partly came out of my fragility. And again, I felt the Lord saying, you know, the the lady could have come with all kinds of negative stuff, uh, but your identity is not rooted in that. Your identity is rooted in something deeper, but uh, it's an ongoing In my own life, I realized this was a couple of years ago, and I think kind of stemming out of some similar self-reflection before God, um, that I would often, if I knew that someone was um, not in a good place emotionally, but I wasn't sure why, I would assume that it was my fault. And so again, goes back to some family systems things we don't need to get into here. But so what, so first of all, I started to learn it's not always my fault. And then I would be so relieved that it was not my fault that I essentially had no compassion for the fact that my husband or sister or child was upset. And it was just this funny process of recognizing like they're still upset. And even if it's not your fault, perhaps you'd like to care for them, you know? Um, But I do, again, that sense of being able to, yes, with vulnerability and humility, Mm. enter into um, challenging conversations and disagreements and, you know, have curiosity about all of that is, is key to being people who are being healed and able to bring healing into the world. And I wanted to um, turn to that, you know, for this kind of last section of our conversation together, because, you know, there's a real progression in the book. We receive a God, well, there's a, the world is a fractured place. We can receive God's healing presence uh, through prayer and humility and addressing anxiety and some of the things we've been talking about. And then, um, and not necessarily always in, you know, ABC order, but we can move out into the world from a place of greater wholeness to bring that healing. And I just wondered if you have any stories uh, from your congregation or your own life that uh, point towards that movement towards healing and wholeness and how that ability to bring healing out into the world, you know, how that can actually happen. I'm also thinking of, um, this is earlier in the book, but you wrote in God's hands, our wounds become sources of healing for Mm -hmm. ourselves and for others. God wastes nothing, not even our deepest pain. And I think that's such a word of hope as well. That sense that we can move from brokenness to healing, not only in our own lives, but actually as a blessing to the world. So again, are there any stories or examples that come to mind of that, that process? Yeah. You know, there's a couple come to mind one uh, in my own life. And and then one from uh, something I saw in our congregation that I I talk about regarding the election season Hmm. in my own life, you know, uh, 
back to the woundedness part you just mentioned, like to, to live in a world that's uh, inflicted by and, uh, you know, sin and powers and principalities leads to a kind of traumatized society. Mm-hmm. And trauma has been a word that's been coming up more and more in recent years to being, you know, um, aware, trauma aware. And, and um, how do we have, again, the vocabulary to talk about what it means to be human and the ways that block the flow of love. And I remember having a conversation with someone, uh, a guy in our congregation who we were very different from one another. And across the board, yeah. uh, we saw everything so differently. And he was just a pain in my neck. I mean, truly <laughs> pain in my neck. Every time I got an email conversation, we just saw things so differently. And I remember I was about to have a conversation with him. And uh, one of our pastors calls me. And uh, I've been thinking about at this point, um, uh, you know, that w- people who have been so traumatized, um, they have a hard time loving for good reason. And if we don't recognize the trauma that we carry, uh, that could just be a bit of information that keeps us from actually seeing people in their woundedness, not to excuse behavior and all that, but to meet them on a different level, so to speak. And so I remember having a conversation with this pastor and he said, do you know that this person I've been in conversation with and was about to meet, he began to just outline the level of trauma from his story that he's experienced over the years. And as I began to hear about the depth of loss and the depth of trauma, information that I didn't have before, which is why the church can be a really beautiful place for wholeness when we learn each other's stories. Mm. When we know each other's, we, we talk a lot about genograms at New Life, and we share genograms with one another, just the, our family history and the and what how we've been, how we've sinned, how we've been sinned against. Mm. Something when we when we get access to that information something shifts in our souls where we're able to see someone in a different light. And I remember hearing about their story of trauma. And after hearing about the level of loss of the experience, I was just able to be present with the person in a new way. Um, and never, not everything was solved in that moment. We, we still disagreed on so much, but I do think my vision for this person, my love for this person, my affection for this person was shifted, I think significantly uh, because I recognize there was some significant loss and pain. And I have my own significant loss and pain that I must tap into. And so I think our wholeness, when we recognize the depth of brokenness and woundedness that we are all carrying, uh, I think that positions us to love well. I also think about, you know, I write about what does it mean to be a calm and curious presence uh, in the world? And the best, one of the best examples I think about is in 2020, uh, you know, we had this election. Amy Julie, I don't know if you remember it. There was a guy named Donald Trump who was going. Oh, to really? Trump. No. You know, <laughs> I almost I, forgotten. I know a couple years ago, but uh, <laughs> and so I remember getting an email from one of our pastors saying, uh, "Hey, I have a great idea. We should have four weeks before the election this conversation on Zoom with our all invite the whole church and have two people, one voting for Trump, one voting for Biden, talk about why." they're voting for each. And I thought, this is the worst idea I've ever heard in my life. Now, remember, we're experiencing COVID, racial injustice, everything, uh, political. I mean, I'm like, why would we do this to ourselves, to our fragile congregation? Mm -hmm. And so I said, we're not going to do it. I came, she came back to me, said, we can get two of our elders to do it. And I thought, you know, this is even worse, you know, to have (laughs) to do it. I think it's really going to crumble. 
And and then, you know, I, I kind of heard, you know, I, I thought well, like they're most we're the emotionally healthy church, you know. And I'm thinking that's when my predecessor, Pete Scazzaro, was leading it. You know, this is a new day. We're no longer <laughs> enough of that. <laughs> <laughs> we're done with that message. Uh, and it turns out that I agreed to do it. And what I saw really surprised me. And I'm the pastor of this church, you know, and what I saw was uh, two people who were calm and curious. Yeah. And I, you know, when I, when I tell this story, I don't want to romanticize um, that everything was wonderful and there was no significant disagreements and it wouldn't get awkward. And the chat section was pretty awkward at times during that webinar on Zoom. Sure. But I did notice a level of curiosity that what was happening was uh, the two uh, elders that were in conversation with each other were just asking curious and compassionate questions about help me to understand. Yeah. And um, again, we didn't walk away with much agreement on some things, but I do think the way we modeled something that could be different in the world. And I, I and so I mean I I, I can I don't want to be naive here and idealistic and romanticize this thing here. But uh, I do think the church, if, if the church can become a greater place of curiosity uh, to recognize the larger idols, fears, longings of our souls, I think it can lead us towards wholeness. And that event, I think actually pushed our church for, forward in terms of wholeness and healing as opposed to greater fragmentation. And so those are just a couple of stories that come to mind. I love that last story um, in particular because of that sense of um, whether or not this was the intention, it seems to me you created a space that said, we really mean it, that your politics are not what um, create your identity yeah. and certainly that create your sense of membership and belonging here. We have leaders who disagree, and I would assume they're talking to each other um, in terms of because of what I believe to be true about the love of God. I'm voting in these totally different ways. Right. And so to, as you said, to model that way of thinking, that way of engaging with, you know, quote unquote, the other side, but in a personal manner, I do think it took tremendous courage um, on your part and on theirs to do it, uh, especially in our, in our society, but oh my gosh, how much do we need that as a way, especially among, I mean, even among Christians, especially among Christians, we are not in a place of being calm and curious with one another, uh, I think, particularly in the political realm. So I just, I really love that story. And I think it does speak to the way in which becoming, you know, emotionally healthy can actually lead to um, really bringing, mm. you know, goodness and kindness and beauty out into the world. Um, well, I, I would, could sit here and talk to you all day, but I'd love to just ask one more question because the final chapter of the book is about justice. And I was thinking about the kind of trajectory as you used the words earlier, individual, interpersonal, institutional. There's this sense of healing and love and even an understanding of sin. All of those things work on all three of those levels. And the book is kind of leading in a direction towards justice, but it makes me wonder sometimes like, is justice a result of healing work? Because if it is, it feels a little bit like we'll never get there. And, and of course, we're never going to get to like perfect justice. But like, I've got I've got a lot of healing work to do. So I can't trouble myself with that justice business quite yet. Because you know, so like, how is justice a part of healing work and not just 
once you're all set, you go out and you care about the poor or something like that. Does that make sense? Like what I'm asking? That makes tons of sense. And it's something that comes up over and over in our congregation on so many different levels, not, mm-hmm. not just apply justice, but apply to just serving, uh, you know, people hear about emotional health and Sabbath and uh, introspection and self-examination. Yeah. And they go, uh, you know, when I get whole, then I'll serve. Well, we're going to be here for a long time uh, yeah. before you do that. And so I know, I, I think uh, there must be uh, this interplay, this mm-hmm. concurrent interplay of action to your point where you said early contemplation reflection and action and uh you know there are some theologians like uh gustavo gutierrez out of uh in you know latin america who would who would say that uh from a liberation uh, theology perspective that uh we begin with practice uh that justice is really about um, pra- beginning with practice and then reflecting on the practice that we're giving ourselves to, that it begins with action. Mm-hmm. And, um, but then we're reflecting on the action that's taking place, whereas others might begin with reflection and then moving towards action. And mm-hmm. so I think however it's hap- however that's happening, whether we're beginning with that first and then reflecting, uh, I-, I think personality-wise, temperament-wise, that might differ, but we need not wait until... Mm-hmm. Every wound has been healed. Every genogram has been done. So we have 20 counseling sessions and 10 uh, spiritual direction sessions and and one Enneagram assessment before we can (laughs) work for justice in the world. No, reframing justice again, justice is what Cornel West said, justice is what love looks like in public. And Mm -hmm. so if I'm to give myself towards love uh, in public institutional ways, uh, it calls for action right now. Mm-hmm. Now it's going to differ from person to person and it's going to differ in terms of scope. I talk a lot about justice from a local perspective as a pastor. Uh, we want, it's very easy to get caught up on social media and think about justice in very abstract ways that we don't actually end up doing anything except tweeting and posting a picture about why we should be doing X, Y, Z. When I preach about justice and teach about justice, I'm thinking about my local community in Elmhurst, Queens. I'm thinking about, you know, New York City. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking very concretely. Uh, And so I'm trying to move our congregation to immediately begin to address matters of justice today. And it need not wait until we find wholeness in ourselves. And so as a matter of fact, Amy Julia, I would say that it is when we give ourselves to justice that we actually move ourselves closer to wholeness Mm. because our wholeness is not found in a privatized relationship with God. Our wholeness is found within the interpersonal engagement with others. And so to the degree that I can offer myself in love to others uh, is a degree to which I will become whole. Uh, And so wholeness is not just this individual project that I'm getting engaged. I went to a private retreat and I love my, I go to monasteries all the time. But if we think that wholeness can only be found in a monastery and not found as well in the soup kitchen and not found as well in the protest line and not found as well in uh, the ways that we're uh, promoting policies for um, equitable living, that's where we find wholeness as well. And so I think we need to reframe a bit. Where is wholeness found? It's not simply found in my prayer closet. It's often found in the streets as well. 
And it seems to me that that what you said um, to begin that that reflection and action are in a dynamic with each other, so that when I am, you know, out on the streets with a protest sign or when I'm serving in the soup kitchen, there is an opportunity, whether it's in the moment or later to say to recognize God's presence in both of those places and to recognize the presence of love or the ways in which I was turning away from that love, but just um, to, to have a contemplative mindset, which I think is the mind of Christ. I think back to even the story of like, you know, Jesus hears that John the Baptist has been killed and goes off to pray and gets interrupted for like a day to provide food and teaching and healing for people. And mm. then as soon as that's all over, he goes off to pray. Like it, he did get uh, kind of, he had to wait for it, but he also made sure it happened. And so there was this public and private interplay. And, you know, obviously Jesus was operating out of a place of wholeness that I do not quite have, but nevertheless, I think it's an encouragement to me to not think I need to be doing any of this perfectly. And mm. that it is all actually, um, kind of weaving together and a part of the healing and the wholeness to be able to both recognize, you know, again, using the movement of your book, recognize the distortion of love, mm. practice and participate in the, um, really the receiving of God's love in terms of that humility and contemplation, and then of living that out, whether it's in individual, interpersonal or institutional places. Um, yeah, so thank you for just giving us so many different facets of the love of God and of what it uh, means to live a life that is beautiful and good and kind. We, I really loved your book and I'm excited for people to be able to read it. Thank you, Amy Julie, so much. And at the end of the day, if people can reframe love and see it as the most powerful force in the world, in such a way that moves beyond uh, sentiment, you know, sentimentalizing it and all that there. Um, I think we can take Anvil towards wholeness and take the next step there uh, in our journey. But um, uh, if if I can help them to do that, I'd be very pleased. Uh, and I think um, uh, a greater sense of wholeness can await us. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, as always, for listening to this episode of Love is Stronger Than Fear. You can check the show notes for links to the books and passages and articles we mention. And if you have listened this far, you might be someone who cares enough about this podcast to go and give it a rating or review and or to share it with other people who might benefit from conversations about hope and healing in our fractured world. So take, I don't know, two minutes and offer that. It would be a gift to many and I would deeply appreciate it. I'm always grateful to Jake Hansen for editing this podcast and to Amber Beery, my social media coordinator who does more to support this show than anyone will ever know. And I am also grateful to you my listener, and I pray and hope that as you go into your day today, you will carry with you the peace that comes from believing that love is stronger than fear. <laughs>